0: This podcast is supported by JBS International Incorporated through a grant award from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, with 0% finance with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official views of nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. For more information, please visit HRSA.gov. Welcome into another episode of Rural Roads, the r podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rabel with JBS International. Before we jump to today's episode, a few r TA reminders. Have you visited the r TA portal recently? Hopefully, that answer is yes, because it is the best way to stay up to date with all the latest and greatest r resources, info, and other opportunities. From the portal, you can dive into various toolkits or templates, engage with different learning modules on the LMS Visit our core corner and read past newsletters, rewatch past webinars. You get the idea. Also, be sure to connect with our courtier on social media. You can find us on Facebook, X, and Instagram. And now let's get to today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Royal Roads, the Art Core podcast. Continuing on with our mini series with Dr. C, we're joined today by Melinda Campo Piano. Thanks so much for joining again, Dr. C.
1: Hi, Tim. Good to talk to you.
0: So last time we were speaking, we were talking a bit about starting up buprenorphine for people using fentanyl. Today's topic, we're talking about getting off the starting blocks that lag between a provider deciding to provide treatment with buprenorphine and then seeing that first patient and specifically that it can feel like a, a long time. And so I guess I want to start with your experience, your kind of perspective on it. What's generally going on there with that lag?
1: Yeah, that is a, an area of frustration that I hear from grantees a lot. It's like they get people trained, and then it's like, why? What's the holdup here as far as starting to offer treatment? So I think of the factors that contribute to the delay, if you will, being two general types. There's the things that have to do with clinicians themselves, and there's things that have to do with the outside of the clinician. And so starting with the the clinicians themselves, a lot of grantees are are working with people in the primary care environment, but it's true of all healthcare delivery right now is that people are overwhelmed. The pace of care, the volume of patients that need to be seen in primary care, it's just the number of conditions you have to screen for, the challenges of managing multiple chronic conditions. It's a lot. And so They may say, oh, this is a good idea. I definitely need to do it. But they're just overwhelmed. How do I shoehorn something else in here? The other thing is that change is notoriously hard. And it's notoriously hard in, in healthcare amongst clinicians. It's very difficult to get clinicians as a group to adopt new practices. We... We tend to get a little stuck and I think this is a a common sort of cognitive bias, if you will, where the way we were trained and the knowledge base that we acquired in in training and health professional school tends to be a little fixed. And they've actually evaluated things that have nothing to do with addiction. Like here's a new gold standard for this common condition and it takes years and years and years and years, frustrating number of years, for clinicians to be consistently doing this new, if you want to call it that, not very new anymore, gold standard. Mm-hmm. So that's a phenomenon of of clinical practice that uh, you know I wish I knew a way to fix. But so that's part of it. I think the other thing is we can go to trainings and acquire some knowledge, right? We've got the facts, but it's a different process to feel sufficiently skilled at something. We know it, but can we do it? And our health professional training is usually an apprentice model. You learn some stuff, you watch somebody do it, somebody watches you do it. And then if you're lucky, you get to teach somebody else how to do it. And that's how it really gels. This is a difficult step, the skill acquisition step for clinicians. In this context, you're busy in practice, you go to a training where do you get the skill opportunity? And it can be very difficult to find a mentor, somebody that understands rural practice is easy enough to get to that you can observe them, uh, that could maybe come and observe you or allow you to do uh, an induction or two of buprenorphine, start buprenorphine in their practice. That There's some logistical challenges and access issues there that we could talk about. But the other thing could be coverage. So physicians in particular, actually all healthcare providers, especially in rural areas, they work a lot of hours, a lot of days. If they get a weekend off, they would like to know that there's somebody who can handle these the patients that they're providing addiction treatment to. If they're lucky enough to get to go on vacation or take maternity leave or something like that, they, there needs to be somebody that they can hand off the patient care to that is sufficiently trained to step in and and take over for them. And as you, as everybody knows that the treatment providers are still a little thin on the ground. Um, So finding that person that can help me make sure I get a weekend off now and then is another thing where people just get stuck and they may not even have that on their list of things to do, find a coverage provider. Analogous for some health professionals, advanced practice nurses, physician assistants. In some states, they require a supervising physician. And so, that can be a roadblock too, is identifying a physician who's willing to be that for you. And some states have rules about how many health professionals can be supervised by the same physician and so on. So, it gets complicated fairly quickly there for the clinicians. It's shifting gears from like things that are inherent in the clinician or specific to them as professionals that can be causing delay in implementing addiction treatment services in practice uh, and shifting over to what are some of the things that might be going on in the practice setting, whether it's an office or a clinic or even in the community that may be making things drag out. And buy-in from staff is still a big one because really to be successful, everybody who's going to have any interaction with patients needs to be on board with what you're doing. If the person in the lab is not on board, their their reluctance or their reserve will, will come across to other members of the team and possibly to patients. Similarly, if the person on the front desk doesn't feel like totally this is the right thing to do and I'm... Ready to deal with it, that will come across. And then that can fragment the team. It can contribute to patients feeling stigmatized and unwelcome and so on. Um, So, building buy in from everybody from the front desk to the back office is critical and maybe harder than some of the clinicians might have expected. Getting everybody trained. So, let's say everybody is fine, let's do this. We want to do it, we want to save lives but how exactly what do you need me to do what should i say what should i not say that's going to require some training for everybody basically and then everybody is going to need retrained they they're going to need their skills refreshed and then people come and go there's turnover in positions key positions or people move from one position to another and now they need to learn what their responsibilities are With regard to addiction treatment that you're providing in their new role. And and so a provider who's looking at sustainability for their practice is going to be going, I know I'm going to need this whole training to happen all over again in a year. And where's that going to come from? It's not just going to disseminate by osmosis. And then people, it's natural that you need your skills refreshed, updated, because you get in a routine and you slide on a few things. You just need a kind of a little booster, if you will. So that that can be a, a big challenge. Staff, for a variety of reasons, some of them direct personal experience and others misinformation that might have been introduced to us during our training may have fears or negative expectations about how they think people with substance use disorder are going to behave in their office. And this is an example having to do with physicians in particular, but this type of thing could happen to anybody working in a healthcare environment. Is I used to have medical students and residents come out to my office where I was doing addiction treatment. And very often they would say something towards the end of their time with me to say, I had no idea people with substance use disorder could be so pleasant and have their act together. They A lot of times when you're in training, you only see people when they're in acute distress. They're in the ER, they're in the hospital, something isn't going well for them, their coping skills are maxed out. And just the idea that people come sit in the waiting room between your patient with hypertension and your child with an ear infection, wait their turn, are pleasant, get their medication, Get in their car and drive away. It's just, wait, we're not providing that interaction for people when they're in training. So they have a, a certain set of expectations that they may need some direct like experience or information to get rid of those notions. And that's where people, people in recovery can come and be part of training that you provide or having peers be part of the team in the office can help with that to try to overcome the fears and misapprehensions. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the community that you're in. If your community isn't fully on board with addiction treatment, even not halfway on board, it creates a little bit of a, I can't think of a better word, hostile kind of unwelcoming environment Mm -hmm. for the provider to step out and do something a little different. And and they may not fully appreciate how chilling the effect of that will be until they've gotten trained and now they're like about to start. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. The treatment program actually does not welcome patients on medication or the community leader, judge, sheriff, county government, board of supervisors, board of directors of my own clinic Rotary Club members, they're verbally opposed. They're out there saying, this is a bad thing, we don't want it. And how how is this individual provider who's already really busy supposed to confront that? And especially in small communities, these are your neighbors. These are your peers in the community. And to put yourself in opposition to them, especially if they're vocal about their feelings, that takes the stress out of the office and into your whole life. But actually, that's the kind of thing I think the grantees are working really hard to get community level buy-in. And maybe making sure your clinicians are aware when people change their views, it, it would be a good thing to do to try to Get them off the starting blocks, so to say. Because if, if I, as a clinician, I hear one kind of vocal person who is a sort of a community influencer opposed to what I'm trying to do, that's going to register with me. And I may not really hear about it if they start backing away from that position. Communicating with that about that to your providers who are interested in starting or maybe hung up on something could be a, a good role for the grantee addressing the training needs, including stigma, to build buy-in. That's something you can be working on even before the provider is trained and ready to roll. Keeping an eye on sustainability of training is important. So there's, I guess on the bright side, there's a lot of opportunities for grantees to build a highway for the provider to get from the training to delivering the care a little faster than they would without a paved road to go down. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's great. Uh, anything else you, you want to speak to around sp- challenges specific to the practice environment?
1: I don't think so. I do just want to mention, again, a PCSS now is does provide mentors. I know they work really hard on getting rural mentors, but that's always a challenge. The We do here at the core TA offer a third Wednesday of the month, 12 o'clock Central Time, a little discussion section for providers. It's meant to be clinicians who are prescribing medication or taking care of patients on medication. Mm-hmm. So it's an opportunity to talk to your peers and maybe try to address that skill gap a little bit And meet people who are doing the same thing. And actually sending your clinicians to conferences is sometimes helpful, whether it's a regional or national conference, because then they can not just sit there and absorb information, but network and maybe meet people that, that are nearby or that are welcoming to them coming and having some time to observe in their practice. I know the American Society of Addiction Medicine is a is a multi-specialty group, so you can send all of your potential prescribers there and they're welcome. So that might be like one type of meeting to go to, but I'm sure there are others. So just in terms of like little ideas that the grantees could um, try to use to, like I said, pave the road for the provider.
0: Yeah. Great suggestions, good plugs for our own resources they have done a lot of talking, provided a lot of information on a, an important topic. Anything else you wanted to add just as we wrap things up?
1: No, I think not really. I will just say that frequently in my office hours, we concluded by just saying thank you. Thank you for the work mm-hmm. you do. It's hard work. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. And we're here. We're here to help.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And as always, appreciate you joining, Dr. C. It's great to have you on. For those listening, thanks for tuning in and we'll catch everyone next time.
1: Okay. Bye, Tim. Bye, everybody.